Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This question, why? Is this is stuff this happening? happening? The New York, the New York Times, Times article, article, I mean, editorial, editorial today. today. The Trump the effect. Trump effect. See, this See, this is what I'm doing with I'm my doing money, money, buying newspapers like, like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump the effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink under, tr under, under Trump, 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 on the on brink, the brink of, fascism. of fascism. New York, New Times, York Times, all the news all that's good to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. So I mean, just like the Nazi Nazi. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. White people kill for fun. I think we all know that by now. Tensions are high among Americans leading into the 2024 election. According to a new national survey, 75% of respondents believe the future of the country's democracy is at risk next year. And the survey also found that a growing number of Americans support political violence in an effort to save the United States. White people kill for fun. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razoo dogs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus, Milk Plus Velocet, or Sintamesk, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. People kill for fun. Decals, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, January 22, 2024. So I have been told, as I said yesterday, we will be here every day for the foreseeable future that has been the case for some time that will continue tomorrow and the remainder of the week I will say the only slight exception will be Wednesday that's the broadcast that I have been talking about for some time saying okay we we're gonna be on every day one exception one guest is not a US resident since they're on the other side of the planet we're having to grapple compensate with the time difference so we'll be on very early Wednesday you know I'm not a fan of those early broadcasts two thumbs down but 12 p.m. Pacific 3 p.m. 
Eastern. That'll be Wednesday. We'll be here just because our guest other side of the planet. So what can you do? Time differences. But still here Wednesday. I'll give reminders as we get closer. Anyway, uh, quickly, context for our broadcast today. One, the audio segment that we heard at the beginning, the grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, who predicted over a year in advance that President Trump or that Donald Trump at the time that he would win the presidency in 2016. She started saying that right around midsummerish 2015. Well, in advance, saying he is going to be our next president. End stage white supremacy. That's how she described it the violence and what have you. Dylan Stormroof, also 2015. We heard Jamie Nero call into the cows with white people kill for fun we have reminded folks of that important point for many years sadly I think it's true next we heard the report from NPR that was literally just a few days ago 23% of Americans approve of violence to save the country and democracy. We just talked about that. Who are they even talking about? What do they mean? Particularly place all of this in the context of January 6, 2021. Or we could move to South America January 8, 2023. Either or. Uh, We just talked about that. And then we came back with, oh, and in fact, pause just for a moment. The music was not an accident that dirged the funeral for Queen Mary. When we had Jenny Bullstrode as a guest on the program just this past summer, she also joined us, other side of the planet. She said, the British Empire, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, all of that, King Charles, empire of white supremacy, racism. We just talked about all of that Stanley Kubrick said he chose that music, the dirge, the death of Queen Mary, to open his film Clockwork Orange about violence, to make people uncomfortable. Now, I don't know if you want to think system of white supremacy racism, but it would be accurate. Ultra violence. That would be the British Empire, the Empire Global System of White Supremacy Racism. Yes, ultra-violence. That's the audio segment. Now I can even, we will, white people permitting, if we're still alive, next February we will do our 15-year anniversary of broadcasting. We still haven't solved this problem, so maybe we've been wasting time. What have we done over our 15 years sometimes I look at the references for people who are going to be a guest on our program, say, oh, let's see how many names I recognize. So this time through, I recognize Dr. Peter Simi. I even had a chuckle because that one is kind of important. Dr. Peter Simi was with us in the spring of 2020 to discuss the Boogaloo. 
system of white supremacy. And I remember asking him specifically because they do research on terrorism. And I said, do you all specifically study white supremacist terrorists at the Institute? And he said, no. I appreciated him for his honesty and what have you. Uh, man, but we were about six months away from January 6th. Obviously, he's written and talked about racism and all that good stuff, but in his capacity in studying terrorism, they, at that time, no, they did not focus on white supremacy terrorists in the archives. And that was, as I said, about six months from January 6th in the archives. Noel Ignatiev joined us in 2009. And in fact, he joined us on the day Michael Jackson was being buried during the service. In fact, next I saw Elliot Jaspin. I just referenced him. Now he was a guest on the program in 2010. It's been quite some time, but buried in the bitter water why did I just reference him? We were just talking about the purge in Wilmington, North Carolina, and to be truthful, Minnesota too. But every time when they talk about those incidents where white people being violent decide that they're going to kill and purge all of the black people from the area, that sort of thing is not a one-off. That has happened. Elliot Jaspin, in writing that book, said, I looked at the census records, all of the data to compile this here text, I think it's happened at least 260 times. At least. That can be documented. That's why I just mentioned Elliot Jaspin, although I mentioned him pretty frequently because those racial purges are very important. Next familiar name, I saw Dr. Nell Irvin Painter. She was with us also in 2010. We discussed her book, The History of White People. Now, interestingly, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, black female who is married to a white person. But I remember there were many important components, but one of them that was important was about a footnote in her work where she talked about a part of white culture, sexualization of young boys and all of those statues of young boys throughout Europe. Whew. The history of white people, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter. Uh, and then one of the last names that I remembered, Amy Louise Wood, lynching as spectacle. Very important. She is a white woman. Man, we talked about so Carolyn Bryant Donna, but we talked about the role of white women violence the violence of white supremacy we talked about these white women like Carolyn Bryant Dunham being at these lynchings and how have they been deliberately erased from the history and what is their role in all of this violence very important book for many even the hey what have we said already a bunch of times white people kill for fun those are some of the names I recognize just looking at the references for our guest today. He did a report that caught my attention because the title really didn't have any pussyfooting or messing around. It was so direct. 
maybe because it's a dissertation. This isn't something that was sitting out on the shelf at Barnes and Nobles or what have you, or maybe it is now, I don't know, but at least that's not how I found it. It was just in the university catalog dissertation, The Politics of White Violence. Very interesting work. A privilege to chat it up with the author today. It was just published in 2023 as well, so it's kind of still, what do they say, hot off the presses. The author joining us live to discuss what I think very important research, maybe help us understand what it means to be white. Political scientist, Dr. Sean David Long. Dr. Long, are you with us, sir? Yes, I am. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday evening. Listeners, we're on live. Make sure you share the program. Let folks know social media, whichever program platform you use. Let folks know. Listen in. They will want to hear about this dissertation, The Politics of White Violence. Uh, Before we get started, I'm sure we have lots of, or I hope we have lots of scholarly listeners, but I'm sure they haven't necessarily read your work. Uh, What would you like folks to know briefly uh, about who you are and the work that you do down in California? Great. So uh, I started uh, getting my PhD uh, about two months after the Charlottesville um, protest, for for lack of a better word, back in 2017. Um, So so from the get-go, my desire was to essentially study how to me, as as a, a white person, seemed very shocking, which was this, this rise over white supremacy in, in American politics. And so, so my goal from the get-go was to study something that to me felt shocking and felt new and felt very different. And over the course of uh, seven years, uh, both of trying to convince uh, academics that this was an important thing to study, and also studying it for this period of time, I think this is this is in no way a a new. I mean, it's shocking, but it's not new. Uh, Doctor Long, and, and the uh, audio, the connection got really bad all of a sudden. I don't know what happened. Oh, I'm sorry I, to hear that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna disconnect and just call you back. I'm gonna uh, switch my number and see Sounds if that'll great. make it better. I'll, it'll be immediate. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. How tacky. They did the same thing yesterday, man. Let's see. All right, give me one second, and I'll uh, switch over and see if I can make it a little clearer. Let's see. Okay, let's see. I forgot the number of attempts, but uh, let's see. Dr. Long. This is Dr. Long. Oh, outstanding. We'll have to maybe try a, a prep test a question to see if the audio will work again so I guess we'll do an easy one so I think we tried two times before you did say that you are classified as a white man yes hey we heard that alright woo let's well, see something. Uh, you're in California did you say that oh, I'm in Oregon right now but I, I did my graduate work in California okay 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 and you said you're a millennial before is that right because you don't have a landline because I don't have a landline, and you know Skype is a little old-fashioned for us these days. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, it's working so far, <laughs> right? It's working so I'm far. I'm glad to hear it. Okay, okay. We might. It might work for the time being. Okay, uh, I will let you know if it changes. But thus far, it sounded like it is working out all right. Wow. Woof. Thanks everyone for their 
patience and uh, stick-to-itiveness. My goodness. All righty. Uh, all of that. So we got white man politics of white violence. Oh, wait a minute. Yes. Now, the part that I did here, I think you said in doing this work, your dissertation, June 2023, that there was some sort of uh, resistance. <laughs> I think you might have said that in terms of people, uh, were they challenging you? Were they rejecting your ideas? What Help us understand. Well, I wouldn't say it's, it's so much resistance at, at this point. Uh, I did spend the first several years working on this project, hearing from multiple people that this doesn't count as political science that white supremacists are a very small amount of people and we shouldn't bother with them. Um, after uh, the Capitol riot, this sort of conversation stopped and everybody decided that it was very novel and very exciting work. So I suppose there's that. That is staggering for so. Hey, but that does mirror Dr. Peter Simi, who, you know, we did talk to yes, him I do. in 2020 very similar so huh not surprised on that one um wow that's okay so we got that boom 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 uh this program i guess before we launch into your work we always start with definitions uh why i think this is so even that they said it's such a small group of people that's not and wow wow who did they before i get to the definition who did who did they say is the big group of, of terrorists and, and bullies that we should be worried about. If it's not white supremacists, who? Well, I think it's more the, the conversation that these sorts of neo-Nazi explicit forms of white supremacy are, are, are dying out. Um, and, and maybe a reasonable argument could be made that the focus should be on law enforcement. The focus should be on, uh, on economic inequality rather than the, the comparatively small number of people who are willing to, to do violence um, directly by themselves without state sanction. Uh, but, but I would say my argument is that these two have to be understood as a whole. You can't understand the economic devastation without also understanding the way that, that the Klan enforced, uh, enforced vagrancy laws, for instance, to go back a few years. Mm. Douglas Blackman, slavery by another name amongst other scholars with a lot of great work, uh, slavery by another name, with a lot of great work on that, vagrancy laws, white supremacy, racism as a total holistic system of violence. Uh, speaking of definition, uh, on this broadcast, the definition I use, racism, white supremacy, I use those two terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. That definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I mean, of course, such system exists. I think the only place that I would quibble is is the definition of whites as people who identify themselves as white, because to some degree, the identification of whiteness is 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 not something we have a we have a choice about. Uh, my dissertation focuses on on a subset. There's about a third of American whites in the United States 
who describe the fact that they are white as being very important to them. But this also does leave out the fact that there's a great deal of whites who maybe because they're not paying attention, maybe because they have not interrogated questions of race, maybe because it's a blinder they would just prefer to keep on, aren't actively identifying this way, but are still participating in, in the strategy that I would want to call white supremacy. Is that a, is that a fair rejoinder? There's our word. There's our word. Ah, wow. Um, in my view, Dr. Long, uh, that is not logical because well, one, you did mention that fella, uh, Noel Ignatiev. Now he did write, uh, how the Irish became white. He also wrote race trader. Now, if white people say, Hey, I understand what all this is about committing violence in so many different ways and slavery by another name and vagrancy laws and police and blah, 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 endless list. We just go on for days. Uh, I understand what all of this is about and I'm party to that and I'm not going to do it for Sean uh, and, and I'm going to go hang out and do whatever I can to work against that. Ostensibly someone classified as white could do all of that. Yes. Right. Right. And, and perhaps that person would be choosing not to participate in this, this process of, of white supremacy. Um, I worry that that lets white people off the hook too quickly, essentially. Uh, I mean, what you're saying is very similar to, for instance, what James Baldwin talks about, or even what the very, very late Malcolm X would talk about. Uh, my worry is about letting white people say, okay, I've gone to a couple of BLM marches. Therefore, I shouldn't be considered white and I am not complicit anymore. The level of complicity that whites experience because of ancestral privilege is very hard to erase. Uh, so, I mean, you're not wrong. That's very much fits with what whiteness is. Uh, it's just also a very intransigent form of identification, I suppose. Hmm. The, the I mean, how skeptical would you be if I told you I no longer identified as white because I marched with BLM in 2020? Probably reasonably skeptical, right? I I would be very suspicious, but the thing is, the substantial <laughs> number of individuals classified as white, they don't even do that. So I mean, pfft, hey, oh, that's fair. <laughs> the vast majority. There's the F word again. The vast majority of individuals classified as white, I think, yeah, it's very reasonable to conclude, even after reading you, especially after reading your work, that they are aware this is not some that they like individuals who are not white that you stuck me in the nigger category and there's nothing that I can do about it that's not the case I'm in the white I'm in the power category I'm aware of it and this is pretty cool I enjoy all of this the racist jokes the abuse well, yeah white people kill for fun that is definitely a larger subset of whites is it not white people who kill for fun I I don't enjoy see... the racist jokes I don't see the minority population of white people who say this is racist and I'm not going to do it. I don't even see very many of them. And then exactly what you said, I would be suspicious of them greatly, even if they did, but it has been very many of them. So yeah, that's why I'm back to what I said, a global system of people who are classified as white, who are dedicated. I to suppose them. I'm, I'm quibbling very an, uh, academically around the margins, but that is that is essentially the game that that academics play, isn't it? 
game. That's another important one. Power system, power dynamics of white supremacy, racism. Right. Um, I also wanted to make sure this man looking for. Okay, so Dr. Long, there is a non-white author. He wrote this mm, nine years ago, and he was writing specifically about white supremacy, racism as a system. He said white people or he wrote white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. Now I've been asking white people like yourself, the first portion of that sentence, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism. You are a white man. You study racism, white supremacy and write about all this. Uh, You know, other individuals who are white. Do you think a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism? I think that there is a fair amount of white people who, when confronted with racism, feel a great deal of pain and guilt. The question is, is, is that most white people or is that enough for them to want to change things? I think that my main issue with this this quote is the fact that what we're seeing now is that there are a lot of white people that are not greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but revel in it and and derive meaning from it. And that's much more the the history of being white than than this idea that white people need not confront race that we've experienced in kind of the pre-Trump era for a few decades. The pre-Trump era? Is that the Obama era or? So there are much of the literature in political science talks about how, uh, and this is something uh, you mentioned uh, being familiar with Neil Irvin Painter's work. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a period of time after civil rights and before Obama where white people felt like they were in a colorblind society, that they no longer had to care about race, that race wasn't something that they had to confront directly anymore. And that this has changed in a fundamental way with Trump and with the backlash to Obama, where a lot of white people are seeing that race is something that exists, but are either unwilling or, or just actively don't want to do anything to, to challenge what they are now being confronted with. And that's not a greater sincere pain, you know? That's a, that's a reveling in something. I see. I see. I was... Just curious as to what time period that was. Like, okay, I got you. I do. Or even even that strikes me as curious because again, your report, the politics of white violence during the Obama years, if that's part of the pre-Trump era. Well, I'm even that because Trump was pretty vocal. He's not even a citizen and all that. You Kenyan, get out. But right. uh, he, President Obama, during those years, he faced historic levels of death threats probably from some of the cousins and homies of the same folks who were out cutting a fool on january 6 uh that right there oh absolutely to me greatly suggest that white people were very aware i mean that's that's how we got to trump i think but some of this will come up in the work um this here dissertation published in 2023 uh, the politics of white violence. Let's even start right there. I mean, that is such a direct title. Like it's no pussyfooting and metaphors and even the term white. Most of the time, like Western 
uh, New Age, American violence. Like, it's none of those very direct. The politics of white violence. Why so short a title for an academic dissertation? Well, I felt like it was it was an accurate description of what I'm trying to do. Um, there have been other people that study gendered violence. There are people who study uh, violence driven by partisanship. And I didn't feel like either of those captured the sort of violence that I'm attempting to understand, which is fundamentally racial and even fundamentally not just about hating racial outgroups, but about creating solidarity amongst whites. It's it's not just about dislike of the other, but it's about being white. That something about being white is intertwined with violence. And I thought that trying to capture both of those things in a few sentences required a certain amount of bluntness. Indeed, it would definitely catch your uh, catch your attention. Uh, so this is uh, your dissertation, uh, 2023. Again, June, not even that long ago. Um, yes. Who was your intended audience for this report? Well, as a dissertation, the goal is, is first to, to fulfill my course requirements, but to eventually tr- turn it into an academic book, which will hopefully be published later this year so that anybody listening can read it. Uh, technically, the goal has to be an academic audience because of the confines of how professionalism and academic publishing work. But notice that that's also primarily a white audience. Mm-hmm. That's an audience of people who are privileged, who rarely, uh, though, though many academics have been trying to to challenge against this, including some of those that we've talked about already. Uh, but by trying to be a little in your face and confront white academics with the need to interrogate the, this racial construct that we are a part of, uh, I suppose maybe more than anything, that's the intended audience. Fascinating. Have you done, have you had, you know, interviews, other podcasters or radio stations reach out to you for this report? Not as of yet, because usually dissertations don't get a lot of attention. It's not until they get turned into books that we start seeing some more buzz about our research. So I appreciate you reaching out. Oh, for sure. The context of white supremacy, one of one. Uh, When you use the term violence, what do you mean? This is a surprisingly complicated question for me, at least. Uh, I suppose at a basic extent, one of the things I'm doing is distinguishing between the sort of violence that we see done indirectly through the deprivation of land, the deprivation of access to healthy food, deprivation of access to educational resources, and the act of of assaulting or killing or, or lynching another human being. Those are both violent. Those obviously have to be seen as as two sides of this same form of white supremacist uh, or just white violence. Um, But I'm focusing on what is often called interpersonal violence, the ways in which individuals simply decide without the support of the government that they want to take up a rifle and they want to attack an outgroup or that they want to go punch somebody or that they want to attack somebody in this physical, tangible way. So in that way, violence isn't abstract. It's very down to earth. But it's also important to see this as part of a broader system of violence, some of which is much more subtle and much more invisible. 
much apply I, I agree completely it is complicated because the system of white supremacy there's so much violence to capture in fact I can put this in context so I've been I've had to say it this way for some time we will be on the context of white supremacy every day for the foreseeable future so what have we been discussing since we've been on daily so Tuesday of last week we talked to Warren Reed his white grandfather was one of the ringleaders in a mob of thousands in 1920 Duluth, Minnesota that lynched three black males proudly took photographs of it and all the rest of it and then they drove the rest of the black people out of this area of Minnesota all based on a lie that they had raped a white woman which turned out not to be true Uh, that was last Tuesday Wednesday uh, we spoke with Caitlin O'Connor white woman about her research on black soldiers in North Carolina being terrorized, threatened uh, by North Carolina police officers, soldiers, random white citizens uh, terrorized. You uppity niggers, you're going to mess up white supremacy in North Carolina. And this is the same area, Wilmington, North Carolina, where they had purged black people 1898. Get on out of here. The same thing. You're going to be a threat to white women. All that. We talked about that before. Thursday, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Why is it called Catherine Massey? She was one of the 10 people killed at the Tops in Buffalo, 2022. What are we reading now? We're reading We Were Once a Family. What's that one about? That's about that little black boy, Devontae Hart, who was crying and he took a hug with the police officer attached to Ferguson, Michael Brown Jr. being shot and killed. He's like, oh, it's so sad. And he was out with the protesters in Oregon with his lesbian white adoptive mothers and his five non-white siblings. Years later, they would deliberately drive them all off a cliff and kill them. Six non-white foster children. That's what we're reading in the book club. Even neutralizing workplace racism on Friday, we talked about the suicide at Lincoln University. Annette Bailey Candia committed suicide after being terrorized in the workplace by her white boss at an HBCU, also in Missouri. And even yesterday, what did we talk about yesterday? We had Dr. Angel Lynn Spalding Flowers. She talks about school shootings. What did I tell her yesterday? I said, wow, this is so amazing. Like I planned it. We talked about school shooters and Dr. Flowers emphasizes that this school shooting problem is a white problem and it is not discussed that way. And it should be Columbine to Perry, Iowa, which is a racially restricted region, it is a white school shooter problem. In fact, Columbine that we spent all that time talking about, Columbine happened on April 20, 1999. It was like, oh, wow, that's Hitler's birthday. Oh, my goodness. Yes, they were in the Nazis 
and Charles Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer, but they originally planned to carry this out on April 19th. That's the same day as Timothy McVeigh bombed that federal building in Oklahoma. Yes, that was deliberate. They intended to kill more people than Timothy McPipe bombs at the school. That's what we talked about yesterday, and I told Dr. Flowers, we're really talking about the same thing tomorrow. We're just removing the term school. We talked about white school shooters yesterday. Today, we're just talking about white shooters, white violence. But that is in context. That's what I mean. Like, it would be really complicated even trying to restrict what we mean when we say violence in the system of white supremacy of racism, especially we're talking about white violence directed at non-white people. I don't even know where the cutoff point would be. Uh, yes, I totally understand what you mean, Dr. Long. Totally. In fact, you said you're in Oregon. Do you remember that case, Devontae Hart and those? I do. Oh, man. I, I, I very clearly know what you're talking about, yeah. Violent through and whole system. Child, what? Dorothy Roberts was just here. She said the whole child welfare system, child welfare system, it's not broken. It was designed to harm, inflict violence on black families black children that is exactly what she said that's the way it should be thought of and understood not it's not broken this is what is supposed to happen Devante Hart and all and is really the whole history of white supremacy racism violence deliberate uh, uh, quickly on page two accuracy so important you wrote several thousand of these individuals, including members of organized extremist groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, eventually stormed the Capitol building, killing one police officer and wounding over a hundred more. Are you talking about Brian Sicknick? Uh, yes. Uh, among other police officers that have, ex uh, have basically said that they had minor to severe wounds as a part of this process. The, are you aware the medical examiner said that Brian Sicknick died from natural causes, uh, that this was not a homicide? Uh, I'm aware that there's been some controversy uh, around whether or not he can be said to have been killed from January 6th. But I'll be honest, I have only been seeing those sorts of talking points from the likes of Tucker Carlson and have not taken them entirely seriously. Uh, the, the point is, is less about whether or not an officer died. Uh, that is not the significance of the Capitol riot to me. The significance is that it was a group of people who claimed to support law enforcement, who claimed to support the U.S. government, at the same time attacking the U.S. government. And I think that that reveals a very strange facet in the way that white supremacy utilizes the American government. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I don't I don't think this is the most important component of January 6th either, uh, just in the spirit of striving for accuracy. And I think Brian Sicknick would be classified as a white male. Uh, I think there is a tremendous tendency to valorize and make heroes out of white people. They did this with Roseanne Boylan and saying that. <clears throat> pardon, beg pardon, saying that capital officers 
killed Roseanne Boylan, who was one of the white protest, white female protesters at January 6th. And it turned out that she died from a drug overdose. Just strive for accuracy. This is one where it's reported that he died from a stroke. Now, I certainly would accept total context. Some would say, well, you wouldn't have had the stroke if these hooligans and white terrorists weren't there doing all this. Now, that might be true. I could totally accept that. But just for accuracy, I I could see some of, yes, I could see Tucker Carlson and some of those folks get an attitude about that. He wasn't killed. What are you doing? But that's not the key part of kind of the far right effort to revise the history of the Capitol riot. Um, And I do think we need to avoid uh, uh, oh, the way we talk about the Capitol riot, often the way that white Democrats have tried to frame it is by seeing it as this, this horrible attack on American democracy, as an attack on brave uh, Capitol officers defending the Capitol building. But definitely not a framing that my research uh, would, would agree with, or that, that I would agree with. Um, I, I, I would be shocked if the members of the Capitol Police that defended against the rioters we're in any way not practicing discriminatory policing against black people every other day of the week. Oh, for sure. And even some of the black officers who were helping to defend uh, all of this. Uh, and yeah, Terry Dunn's book, we just finished that as well. Like, oh, absolutely. That should be framed as an incident of white supremacy yeah. for sure, through and through. Um, you but t- that doesn't distract from the fact that there's still cops. For sure. For sure. For sure. Lots of cops participated in the melee as well. Uh, the This kind of, I think, gets at the core of your dissertation, or I guess you can let us know if I'm in error. This dissertation takes up these questions, attempting to understand the complicated relationship between white support for violence and state institutions. Ultimately, I argue that this support for violence stems from the historically violent an exclusionary character of whiteness, which continues to see whites deploying violence to maintain the color line. Whites who support the use of political violence are not deviating from the central norms of American whiteness, but are instead disagreeing about whether the state can fully uphold these norms. This argument necessitates a shift in focus for discussions concerning contemporary white violence and extremism in the United States. Many mainstream figures have sought to frame such violence as deviant or, most importantly, fundamentally at odds with American values. President Joe Biden, for instance, has been a prominent proponent of this discourse, declaring that forms of hate fueled by violence have no place in America, end quote, and asserting that the Capitol riot represented a dagger at the throat of this democracy. If such violence is instead integral to whiteness, then rather than being external to American democracy, it must be seen as intertwined with democracy in this country, thus requiring new critiques and solutions to the problem of white violence that I think so important gets right to the core uh, of what you're getting at in this report. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit for our listeners and maybe not too much academic jargon in case we have maybe hopefully some high schoolers (laughs) listening so that they can learn as much as they can from you, Dr. Long. 
Absolutely. Uh, so you definitely picked up on, on what I think is the central part of, of my introduction, the central part of trying to lay this out. Um, and I think there are two different parts that I want to, to, to break down a bit. Uh, the first is essentially to, to kind of speak to what I'm, I'm responding to in many ways, uh, which is this discourse that I attribute to people like Joe Biden. But this extends very far, this, this way that academics and everyday people have looked at people like Timothy McVeigh, or they've looked at the Columbine shooters, to go back to some of what you were, you were saying just a minute ago, and they see these people as, as lone wolves, is, is often a term that gets used. They see them as fringe, criminal, mentally ill deviants. They don't see them as typical white people. They see them as, as themselves something that is hostile to our society, that isn't really part of our society, that's these, these weird loners who collect guns. Uh, you know, that's a weird kind of American is often what these sort of people think. But my argument is, no, you can't understand you can't understand the Capitol riot without seeing it against a broader context of, of how white people have talked about politics, of how white people have talked about immigration, have talked about President Obama, have talked about these broader questions of how we resolve racial inequity. And that by seeing that, that, that people like McVeigh, let's just keep going with him as the example, that people like Timothy McVeigh, um, who, who murdered a great deal of people in the name of white supremacy, he is, no, he is not different from the, the sort of basic tenets of American whiteness. He is just a more extreme element of that. And this is what gets into this, this other comment about the complicated relationship between whites and, and state institutions. Um, so with, for instance, the Capitol riot, uh, you had a lot of these white supremacist, white extremist types assault police officers, not because police officers were fighting against white supremacy. That's not really the function of law enforcement in the United States, but because there were two visions of how white supremacy, of how white power should be practiced. Should it be practiced through these established legal procedures or should it be established through a demagogue like Trump and organizations like the Proud Boys? And that's what clashed during the Capitol, right? was two visions of white supremacy. So to understand groups like the Klan, to understand groups like the Proud Boys, we have to understand them as very similar to law enforcement, except with a different approach to whether or not they think they can rely on the law or whether or not they can rely on the government to maintain this shared commitment to white supremacy and white power in the United States. Mm. Very important that typical white people, Timothy McVeigh, Reb, Vodka, the Capitol rioters, typical white people chilling and I think that does that last sentence where if we do understand this as typical white behavior typical white people yes this is going to require a very different way of thinking about what it means to be white and how do we solve this problem of white supremacy racism if this is typical white people and the evidence overwhelmingly even the, all of the ignoring of what went on in 2020 leading up to that even when we were as we have just started reading 
we were once a family, those white women who drove off that cliff in Oregon, a state that didn't even allow black people to live there. They would lash you and beat you out of the state. In that book, she describes how a, oh my goodness, so embarrassing. She describes how it was a Houston sheriff in Texas. He thought there had been some sort of uh, conspiracy to deprive Trump, not going to let him win the election. He holds a white man at gunpoint. He had been doing uh, reconnaissance and everything. She includes that because the author is in Texas. There are so many layers. If that is true, if this is, what does it mean to be white? Whew. Right. And I think it, it's connected to understanding something like, like lynchings. When you described lynchings a few minutes ago as something where there's, you know, historically they would have barbecues. They would take souvenirs. Uh, the the poem by Richard Wright, uh, Between the World and Me, really really gets at this well. Um, it wasn't something that was done furtively. Violence against black people historically isn't something that's done furtively. It's done to, to show off. It's done to demonstrate that white people are the ones with power in the community. So often the differences that you get are, is racism being practiced by Oregonians who have used violence historically to keep the state homogenous? Or are they being used by people in Alabama where white people are confronted with the fact that it is not a homogenous state and thus they use violence in different ways depending on the different contexts? But it's not different violence. It's still rooted in this same tendency. Great point. That's one of those homogenous. I do know what it means, and I certainly encourage people to read and flex your vocabulary but we have teens like that's one being explicit like to deliberately exclude black people under the threat of a lashing <laughs> like the violence violence um, you you write to explain this phenomenon I utilize a theory of white social identity that is fundamentally exclusionary and violent while white identity serves as a distinctive in-group phenomenon, it must be situated at the apex of a racial hierarchy that depends on violence for its maintenance. As Jardina shows, the notion of white identity is becoming increasingly relevant to white decision-making. While this was not historically true, with whiteness sufficiently dominate to, dominant to serve as a default American identity, perceived threats to whiteness have made whites more aware of their identity and more cognizant of the need to organize politically to defend it. On page four, right at the beginning of the report. Now, there's so much there. I guess even just to go back to the very beginning, I think that is highlight, underline. I just want to read that sentence again. I utilize a theory of white social identity that is fundamentally exclusionary and violent. White identity serves as a distinctive in group phenomenon. It must be situated at the apex of a racial hierarchy that depends on violence for its maintenance. That is saying quite a lot uh, for what it means to be white. Do you get resistance? Do people push back like, whoa, 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 Dr. Long, that's wait a minute now. I don't agree with that. 
Well, one of the things that perhaps protects me from that is that I'm engaging very much with like every sentence of what you've read is engaging with the sort of academic theories that are going around. Um, so more what I hear from other academics is people suggesting that I'm I'm blaming this on whites when I should be blaming this on Republicans. It's, of course, an, an argument that kind of ignores um, most of U.S. history. Uh, but that's often what I hear from other academics. I have been approached by white people who have accused me of being racist against my fellow white people, which is a, a comment that has always confused me. But it, it is something I've heard. Um, I think academics are maybe tactful or passive aggressive enough to not say it quite so bluntly. Racist against your fellow. I love it. I lo- what's, what's your response when they come, Dr. Long, and say, you're being a racist, Dr. Long? Well, I, I tell them that white people can't be racist. It doesn't usually, it doesn't usually satisfy them, but that's what I do. Wow. Wow. When you talked about some of your protections in doing this work in the academy, um, do you think also part of your protection power is the fact that you're a white man doing all this work? I think it would be I think it would be a lot harder to advance these arguments if I were a person of color. I think I would be a lot more inclined to be not taken seriously uh, because it would feel like someone attacking white people from from the outside. So I think maybe there's a certain level of amusement that people feel when a white person is saying these things. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. This portion uh, where you write white identity, same paragraph, is becoming increasingly relevant to white decision making. While this was not historically true with whiteness sufficiently dominant to serve as a default American identity, perceived threats to whiteness have made whites more aware of their identity. Now that I, the last portion, I emphasize that all the time, just that word perceived, these threats do not have to be based in truth at right. all. White people lie a lot. They lie to practice racism. That lynching in Duluth and the purge of black people was all based on a lie. So that's one. It doesn't even have to be that we're talking about true things to motivate white people to do this. Uh, but the first portion in terms of uh, that it wasn't necessarily historically true for white people to think about their white identity in decision making. Uh, is that true, Dr. Long? So this is one of the statements that is necessarily kind of coached in the academic arguments that are, are being made. One of the things that people uh, like Neil Urban Painter, for instance, have argued about whiteness historically is white people were never felt the need to be self-conscious and explicit in many ways that what they were thinking was that they were doing things in defense of whiteness they could easily for instance substitute being white with being american because for most of this nation's history those two have been deeply intertwined The argument that I'm making is not that white people have only started being racist or that white supremacy is a recent phenomena, but that the way that we psychologically are talking or thinking about ourselves is becoming more racialized. So if 20 years ago, you would have a white person who would support the same sort of 
border policies and criminal criminal injustice policies that they would support now, that person would not say on like a survey or something to that effect that they identified very strongly with the fact that they were white. And one of the things that we are seeing now is increasing numbers of people feeling comfortable saying that their politics are motivated by their explicit identification with whiteness. So the argument here to, to unacademic, make it unacademic or less academic, less technical, is not that it has historically not been true that whites have been racist, but that white people have not been as explicit that what they're doing is in defense of whites, that they have often tried to claim that this was for America or for freedom or something to that effect. Does that make sense? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Um, number one, I'm remembering uh, that other fella that we mentioned at the beginning uh, that you referenced as well in your report, uh, Elliot Jaspin, buried in the bitter water. When you have such a, a proliferation of towns throughout the U.S., north and south, east and west, that have enormous billboards that say no negras, James Lowen's work, sundown towns. When you have that, that seems super flagrantly we are thinking about the fact that we are white and we want as you said a homogenous wherever Duluth wherever we happen to be at we do not want negras and the violence is there to enforce when you have that sort of policy and then they close the schools in Virginia Brown v. Board of Education when you have so many of these acts throughout in fact uh, someone asked me today they forgot the book and the author Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, published in 1920, uh, which was a bestseller uh, at the time and continues to be really influential uh, in white thinking, white violence. Um, It seems that there's a really strong, uh, consistent, forever, even in Australia at that same time period, they had a white-only policy. Uh, it's individuals classified as white are always thinking it. In fact, I snickered because Timothy McVeigh, what have we been doing for our 15 years? That bombing in 1995, that is the only event for about a whole year that displaced the O.J. Simpson trial from the front page during 1995. Now, you want to talk about white people being very explicit in I'm white and my thinking and how I Orental James will stir up some racial resentments and racial animus of all sorts. For, and that's 1995. That's what I mean. Like you could pick any time period and it's very, very flagrant. White people are all I, I can't even really think of a period when it would be refined to where that's not the case or they lie and try, I guess, racist without maybe briefly before Obama, but man, for the bulk of the time that white supremacy racism has been obvious, they got placards up everywhere, white, colored, no, I mean, am, am I, am I making sense, Dr. Long? No, of course you are. Uh, again, part of, part of this, this conversation is because what I'm doing is rooting this very much in the, the academic literature. Um, 
but it's it's less a reflection, and, and maybe my language in, in the dissertation is imprecise here. It's less a reflection on saying that white people have never felt this way, but that there has been research done in psychology for the last few decades that has found, for instance, that women often act politically or make political decisions or vote for candidates because they see that candidate as being helpful to women or something to that effect, or African-Americans who will say, yes, I'm going to vote for this candidate because he seems like he will advance black interests. Historically, at least in the past few decades since this research has been done, uh, most whites have not described their political decision-making as that explicitly pro-white. Now, they have always described their political decision-making as being racist. Well, that, that's not the word they would use. But they always appear to be informed by their hatred of, of immigrants or their hatred of black people to make political decisions. But what we've rarely seen until recently is white people saying on surveys, yes, I think the law is unfair to white people, or I think it's important that I'm white, or I'm voting for Donald Trump because I think he will be better for white people. Does that distinction make a little bit more sense? This is not a claim that white people have not been motivated by whiteness, but that the, the, the cognitive pathways are becoming distinctive in this sort of politicized environment. Yes, that does. I do appreciate that. I uh, just for a list for non-white people who are listening in, uh, I so appreciate Dr. Long teasing the detail of that out, but I do think it's important to remember because Frequently, people will try to posit that there's something new or novel about this or that white people at some point became ignorant about racism. And that is just not the case. But yes, that that extra detail, white genetic annihilation, that is an important uh, bit of info. If there has been a flagrant change uh, in that sort of thinking about how they're making decisions, that would be important to note um, this also. And I think that this is tied to to a growth of of power that some non-whites have in the United States. You see the rise of Barack Obama. You see the rise of actual efforts to combat white supremacy within uh, American society. And that this is creating a sense among many whites that the threat is more existential, that it's more pressing than, than maybe they have. Like the, the structure of whiteness is threatened in ways that it hasn't been for years, which thus makes people a little bit more explicit makes people a little bit more aware of what they're doing when they're engaging in racism or when they're voting for a candidate. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. I don't know if the threat is actually there. It's just perceived to be there. Sometimes that doesn't even matter. <laughs> Our guest. Well, exactly. Dr. Sean David Long, uh, his dissertation, uh, The Politics of White violence. Uh, speaking of politics, uh, he writes, this is on page six. Uh, I argue that centering the use of violence is critical to understanding white racial politics in the context. Hey, there's that word of this hierarchical position. While African American and Latino politics may well be best understood by situating struggles over descriptive representation voting rights and discrimination, whites do not generally suffer discrimination or voting disenfranchisement. 
unless based on other non-racial criterion such as gender, class, or sexual orientation, and there's little question that whites have significant descriptive representation within major political bodies. Instead, understanding white politics must center white efforts to maintain their hierarchical position either by weaponizing law enforcement or enacting violence outside of state institutions. Finally, while a great deal of attention is paid to partisan associations uh, present between right-wing Trump supporters, the extremist alt-right and the complicity of the Republican Party in this sort of partisan conflict, this dissertation attempts to foreground the racial rather than partisan motivations at play. Rather than seeing whites committing violence out of partisan loyalty, I instead argue that many violent whites embrace partisan figures like Trump in order to advance white interests, while many violent whites do not see such individuals as working in accordance with white interests. Thus, the right-wing associations with contemporary violence do not reflect the partisan motivations of violence as much as the instrumentalization of partisan institutions for violent racial ends. And I thought that was really important as well. Uh, again, I think you had already touched on that a little bit, but just for listeners, um, I think there is that tendency to just say, hey, this is all GOP nutbags, you know, who are the problem or they'll die out. These are just old Republicans. They'll die out and this problem will be solved. And I don't think that's accurate, historically correct at all. And, and notice that when you, when people say this is older people who are going to die out, or this is just crazy GOP nut jobs in your words, um, what that, what that functions is doing is it does the same thing that I was critiquing uh, Joe Biden for doing a few minutes ago which is that it tries to act like racism and white violence are things that, that are confined to the margins, that are not central features of American society. And so by seeing that this isn't about partisanship, that, this is, that the parties have always served white supremacy in their ways, and that it's more of an evaluation of which party will advance white interests better now, then we can better see how these these attitudes come to be. And when you get to the truly, the, the really extreme sort of white terrorists that I have studied, people like Timothy McVeigh, they don't like Trump. They don't like either party. They think both parties have abandoned them and that they need to take action on their own. And that's part of why they turn to the more explicit forms of violence rather than voting for redlining or voting for school segregation or voting to fund the police. Our dude, Timothy McVeigh, so important. And you even in the report that this trivializes the violence of white people at large, uh, just trying to boil it. Oh, this is just the Republicans and that sort of thing. Widespread throughout the history of what it means to be white. Typical white behavior. Uh, and in fact, that word perceived, that there's some sort of perceived threat that I'm responding to. Oh my goodness. That is 
the school shooter phenomenon through and through the white school shooter just with Columbine specifically because they were influenced by Timothy McVeigh all of this we were bullied we were picked on I guess Dr. Flowers yesterday that's what she researches she said in her view all of that reaching for and we got to do something about bullying is because the people who are doing this are white she said if you look in Columbine they didn't go shoot people that were bullying them Klebold and Harris they didn't even go shoot jocks who they you know were ranting and saying whatever about that's not what they did but they did go shoot in a town that didn't even have very many black people they did shoot Isaiah Shoals and said Reb we got a Negro over here and I think they got that on the 911 call we got a Negro over here and made sure that they shot him they didn't even have that many black people in the school that's what and we justified this that they were agreed they had been mistreated and this happens over she talks about that in her book this happens over and over it's that same sort of path Timothy McVeigh I'm an aggrieved white person that's why I'm justified in committing this violence. I know you didn't talk about uh, school shooters in your book, but have you heard this sort of pattern when these shooting incidents happen and it's a white shooter invariably that, oh man, he was picked on. Reb, they were picked on. That's why this happened. That's definitely something the media really likes to do. Uh, it seems less with more contemporary school shootings to be about them being bullied, but about just blaming it on the idea that they're mentally ill, even though mentally ill people do not commit more violent crimes than people who have no diagnosed mental illness. But either way, the function of, of that discourse is to do similar things, is to say this is an exception. This is not the norm. And especially with school shootings, I think we can all agree that this is no longer an exception. 25 years since Columbine uh, and even the shooting in Perry, Iowa this year. Oh, it's so similar racially restricted region where they don't have very many black people at all, but still the first person killed only student killed Amir Joliff, black boy. And in fact, the shooter in Perry, Iowa, and that happened 2024, just a couple of days ago. He went on social media and you talk about the role of social media and all this. He went on discord minutes before mm -hmm. the shooting and is reported to have said NBC news waiting for this nigger to leave so that I can arm up, get my guns. I said, Whoa, it's not that many black people in the school. Was that Amir Jolof that was in the bathroom? The child that he killed. This was a 17 year old white shooter who shot an 11 year old three times in a school that didn't have very many black people to begin with and a shooting that happened days ago they did say he was bullied they had articles immediately where white people came forward oh he was bullied and his sister was, I mean they went through the whole family he was bullied and his sisters was bullied and oh he just couldn't take it anymore and uh, he went to a middle this was a 17 year old in high school he was about to graduate he went to a middle school and shot an 11 year old black boy three times 
And I suppose what makes me particularly sympathetic to seeing school shootings as, as a racialized thing is that even if there is something like bullying, even if you're feeling deeply alienated in your, your school environment, the, the, the pathway that translates that to saying, all right, I'm going to go pick up a rifle, that pathway does seem very tied to whiteness, both in the sort of people that I've studied and the sort of people that your guests last night studied. If the pathway is always to go from a feeling of being bullied or a feeling of alienation to picking up a rifle, there is something very broad there, and there's something very deep in our culture and in our socialization. And I think people don't want to confront that. The worshiping of it, even that, why I included that white people kill for fun, there's so much of that worshiping these white killers uh, in Columbine and Timothy McVeigh and making martyrs out Dylan Roof, making martyrs out of them. There's so Mm -hmm. much of that in white culture uh, at large. Uh, Got off track. Not really, but uh, you, this is on page. No, I I actually don't think we're off. We're off track at all um, on that. I think there's one of the things that I think is very important is that, yes, we only see one of these white motivated mass shootings every year or so, which is, is, still way too common. But what people don't notice is that every time this happens, there's a significant flurry of online activity of other people who are joining these groups saying this was great, of people tuning into the live streams and wishing these people luck, because as as you probably know, some of the very recent white shootings that we've seen have been live streamed on the internet. Right. That even goes back to uh, Columbine, uh, yeah, that was kind of the first one that people kind of watched live time on television. The hero worship for right. these two white cowards, uh, and they were they were on social media. We even talked about that. They had the web page and all of that, and they're looked at as total heroes. Uh, all of that, and not understood as racist. Even I talked about that with them. The fact that they worshipped Nazis, Timothy McVeigh, and Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed mostly non-white people and looky there they just had that huge smash hit Netflix series Jeffrey Dahmer which really seemed like it was celebrating white violence against non-white people and in fact double the Columbine children they were fans of Jeffrey Dahmer they wrote a school report about him so did the white Iowa school shooter who just killed Amir Joseph he was a Dahmer fanatic too. That through even that, that worshiping, that's why white people kill for fun. You will be celebrated. You are a white person. You go out and kill 20 black people, lynch 50 black people, whatever it is. You will be worshiped a white God. Is that the politics of white violence? You are putting it in a, in a, in a way that I'm not necessarily, I, I would have to digest. But I love that you started out this show with uh, the white people kill for fun line, because I think one of the one of the things that's important to point out is that this isn't always, you know, the the non-whites are at the door. We need to grab our guns. This isn't always even seen as as self-defense. This is often seen as a way to build community, as a way to find other people like you to, to go have fun together. This is definitely what we see in the history of lynching. This is definitely what we see with the way that extremists respond to people like Dylan Roof. You don't go very far in these online communities before you find somebody talking about St. McVeigh or 
talking about Dylan Roof and his haircut and all this just insane hero worship that you see in all of these circles. Wow, I did not know about the hair worship. I'll have to... Okay. Uh, I just... Oh, have... Yeah, don't go down that rabbit hole. Stay out of these communities. <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't right. do this to yourself. Understood. He includes some of that research in the report. I did want to make sure just to include, uh, because I don't think many people, or as many people know should, during Hurricane Katrina, as really emphasizing the point, the Negras are not at the door to rape and loot and all the rest of it. During Hurricane Katrina, there were white people who did not even live in Louisiana. They came to New Orleans for the opportunity to hunt and kill black people. There is a documentary, Welcome to New Orleans. There are white people eating barbecue, no less, festive atmosphere, the camaraderie. There are white people eating hamburgers, bragging about having killed black people during Hurricane Katrina. This is this is not ancient history. Just put this on the continuum. I guess this would be the pre-Trump days, uh, circa 2005, bragging about killing black people as they munch barbecue. White people kill for fun. And nobody said we were under threat. They were going to take our water. They were going to rape us. Nobody said we were under threat of imminent danger. It was say, hey, opportunity to kill some black people? <laughs> Best of What's your name again? Right on. It's good. I think that puts it pretty well. On page nine, A.C. Thompson, White Vigilante Violence in Katrina. He wrote that uh, way back when, 2007, I think. Guest on the cows in 2009. On page nine, uh, you write, the threat that many white Americans feel about rising immigration is notably tied to concerns that they are losing demographic majorities, according to Craig and Richson. That piece found that the salience of demographic shifts led white respondents to evince more conservative views and support for the Republican Party. This general framework has seen additional support, for instance, Enos used a field experiment designed to prime exposure to Latinos and found that respondents that were consistently exposed to Latino Confederates on their daily commute saw significant increases in exclusionary immigration attitudes. Enos helps extend these findings to exposure to African Americans, showing that whites who lived in closer contact to black neighbors were more likely to vote for racially conservative candidates. I had to read that one kind of slowly, like, wow, that is pretty powerful for immediate, <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, that doesn't strike me as white people being ignorant about racism. That sounds that sounds like what you said before, like they recognize and it immediately impacts their behavior when they think something is being disrupted about white power. Am I misreading? No, not at all. Uh, Enos's research is, is incredibly fascinating in the sense that he actually was able to get research associates to go there and just show up at, on, on people's daily commutes. And if people saw them, they were more likely to, to, to answer these surveys in, in more racist ways that primed in their minds the presence of non-white people and made them think about the need to exclude them in a, in a very quick way. 
And and part of what's relevant here is that there's this theory that's been going around political science for a long time. They call it contact theory. And the idea is, and you will find this very laughable, I'm sure, the idea is that the more white people experience non-whites, the more that they live in more diverse communities, the less racist they will become. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the fact that, for instance, there's this perception that whites in in Los Angeles are less racist than whites in rural Idaho. Uh, but what these sort of findings that I'm, I'm summarizing in, in the segment you read suggest is that the opposite is true. That the idea that, that coming into contact with people will reduce racism actually may do the opposite. Wow. That's what I mean about kind of rethinking how we approach racism, what it means to be white. Uh, and in fact, given all of this incredible information, uh, man, I got to go back to the demographics as well, before I can even get to that, just given what we've discussed thus far, is it possible to be classified as a white person and not participate, practice racism, white supremacy in some way? Dr. Long, is that possible? Well, that's a question I ask myself a lot, to be totally honest with you, as somebody that would like to not participate in these structures. Uh, this is this touches on kind of how we started our conversation. I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll let you know if I manage to. I would, I would never feel comfortable saying that I, of a white person, has fully eschewed all of the violences inherent in my privilege. I would never feel comfortable saying but I know that other people would feel more comfortable saying that about white people they see as allies. So I would like to believe that that's true, but I definitely don't want to to rush to conclude that I have achieved such a goal. Hmm. You think it's logical for non-white people to suspect that you as a white man still practice racism, white supremacy and participate in that system of white supremacy, racism, violence? I think it's reasonable to suggest that I probably could be doing more than I am because I don't know any better, because I've been socialized so much into my race that there are aspects of my impact on the world that I am not aware of, and I would be open to those critiques if a peer brought them to me. Hmm. And I think I have to level those critiques at myself. I think part of the way that we as white people try to get out of this problem is by being ruthlessly self-critical about the ways that we are complicit in these same structures. Really? That's, hmm, I have to think about that. I do want to, hmm, I do want to go back as one. He said, uh, not knowing any better. And I think that's one of the very common ways that white supremacy racism gets discussed, uh, as though white people are ignorant, uh, in some way they don't know any better. They're not aware. They're not conscious. They have blinders on. These are some of the very common cliches, metaphors that are used. I think that, uh, give white people some sort of innocence. Uh, I'll ask again just to make sure, see if I got my question answered. Do you think it's logical for non-white people to think that you still practice, participate in that system of white supremacy, racism, violence against non-white people? Is that logical, Dr. Long? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't blame anybody for being suspicious that a white person who claims that they're an ally has actually not done the work that they need to do. Well, I didn't say whether or not you were an ally. I said that you still participate and practice in the system of white supremacy, racism, violence against non-white people. Is that? I guess I don't know what we mean by participate in if you're trying to get so 
so precise on this. Um, I participate in the, well, now the success of American society more broadly. And in that way, I participate in structures of racism because I benefit from this society as a white person. I would like to dismantle those structures and I would like to do whatever I can to do that. The, the, the question of whether or not I manage to do that is, I think, something that non-white people have to evaluate. I don't think white people can be trusted to evaluate that question for ourselves. We're asking some heavy questions here. That's an interesting metaphor, too, heavy. Uh, can you think of a time, <laughs> Dr. Doctor Long, um, can you think of a time as a white man where you have practiced racism, white supremacy, in your time on the planet as a millennial? When I was younger, I was definitely participated in a lot more of these. When I was in, in a teenager age, I was into racist jokes. I didn't think racism was a problem. I thought it was something that people needed to get over. I was very politically conservative. Um, and part of this is just the, the very all-white context that I was raised in for most of my life. And I think there is always an opportunity for people to you know, cut that shit out and try to see that they're, what they're doing is participating in structures of violence. I don't know how many people are, are willing to do that. Um, and I don't know how successful I have been in trying to do that. But I think that any white person who told you that they never ex practiced forms of overt violence in that question, if anybody told you no, that they would be lying to you. Wow. Hey, I did say white people do lie often uh, to practice white supremacy racism. <laughs> you did say that. Wow. That is staggering. Thank you for the honesty. Um Dr. Long, uh, did you, so you said you grew up in a mostly white environment. Was this an area with very few black people, kind of a racially restricted region type place? Well, I grew up in the Bay Area in California, oh, okay, but I grew okay. up in all private schools. So I always mm. went to private schools. So it's not that I never saw non-white people. It's just that the vast majority of my peers were white, and there was never any kind of pushback. I mean, I, I remember when I was playing instruments in high school learning Dixie because I thought it was <laughs> – edgy to play the song and i look back on that and i think you know half the people in the room should have come over and hit me in the face if i started playing that i'd like to think that that's how it is now but i don't necessarily have that high of expectations of people we play dixie on this program all the time i would have played if i'd known that today that's amazing um what it's a little bit different when a white dude is playing it they they had to practically kill people to make them stop playing it in Mississippi at Ole Miss. Um, exactly. The, <laughs> uh, the race we have. Oh my goodness. We have talked about racist jokes for the 15 years that we have been on the air. And we've talked about racist jokes in the context of white violence. In fact, we had uh, Dr. Raul Perez. He was a guest on our program uh, two summers back. And we talked about his uh, book, the souls of white jokes play on Dubois and he breaks nice. down that just the whole importance of white jokes in the system culture of white supremacy, racism and deconstructing uh, some of these jokes and what they mean and all of that. <laughs> One of them, because it's so common, the theme of violence in these jokes being, but that's what white uh -huh. people kill for fun. Matter of fact, we'll see. Do you remember any of the jokes that you used to tell, do you remember, like, remember one that you heard or what have you during that time period? 
I'm not repeating them on this this broadcast, but yes, and you're right. They all do when you think about it come down to jokes about violence or jokes about slavery or jokes about something horrible to that effect. You you said you do remember some of the jokes from this time period, but we can't get one. I'm not telling a racist joke on your on your show, man. <laughs> man, we that's what we do. We went through uh, the book. They have whole books of them, totally tasteless jokes. That's we. Raúl Perez, he has bunches of them in his jo- uh, in his book. I'll share one. I'll share one because it's you. Can, in fact, you can let me know. If you've right, heard you can this do one. it. Let me know if you've heard this one. How do you shoot a black man? Have you heard this one? Oh, God, I have not heard this joke. No, thankfully. Okay. Aim for the boom box. Because he would be having it at his head. I've heard a very, I've heard a slight variation of that joke. What was the, was it the punchline changed? There's a slight different punchline, but still, there were always a lot of jokes of, like, if you get robbed in the night, you just assume it's a black person, that sort of. I mean, it's it's so dumb and not funny because it's the same refrain over and over but people manage to find these just endlessly entertaining and if you consume like pop culture from the 90s it's all through that pop culture there's so many of these jokes uh through forever in white culture abraham lincoln uh if people get forced right. into glory laron bennett jr's book biography rather on well, same thing biography on lincoln Racist jokes. Now we're talking 150 years ago. That's a big chunk of the book. His hankering yeah. for racist jokes. Uh, and, and he knew this. See, see, uh, in addition to Nixon's P, I mean, you could go and Richard Nixon and so many generations, even right now. Right. Matter of fact, what he talked about with social media, how many times have we heard not one police officer? It'll be half of the department caught exchanging racist email right. jokes and oh my god how many cases are we going to have to throw what does it mean and <laughs> and if you look at the rise of this movement called the alt right if you look at the rise of kind of the recent surge of white extremist activity that i've been studying a huge part of their early recruiting was to get edgy racist white teenagers to think their jokes were funny and to go, wow, these jokes are funny. Maybe these people also know what's up with politics. Uh, the, and, and that, that the, the sharing of memes in these communities, the sharing of humor in these communities is still very central to just their, their every day. I mean, I used to lurk in these, these chat rooms for hours a day and 90% of what you see is them swapping jokes. Because what else are they going to talk about? Who stole the election in 2020? <laughs> what are we, how are we going to get our Well, there was a lot of that, too. Yeah, there was a lot of that, too. Wow. That, those jokes are also very important. Uh, they're important any generation, any time. But those jokes are hugely important for recruiting children into all of this. I cannot emphasize that. Uh, and he already said so. He already said so. And he was a young child. They were doing the racist jokes and what have you down in, in private school and playing Dixie and all of that, that right there, racist culture at a young age can't be ignorant. The demographic component uh, that I didn't even get to that white people having a perception, whether it's based in truth or not, that their population in the world is threatened by the majority non-white population in the world. I already mentioned Stoddard's work. 
Um, do you think that's a legitimate concern for a large number of people who are classified as white that, oh, man, our population, we're concerned, birth rates, fertility, that sort of thing? Do you think that's really a pressing issue? Do I think it's a legitimate issue or is it legitimate to say that they're worried about it? The latter. Legitimate to say that a lot of white people are worried about it. Oh, yes. That, that, the answer is definitely uh, that that seems very much at the core of so much of the sort of the particularly extremist behavior we see now. But even a lot of more mainstream right wing efforts to get people like Claudia Gray fired or to attack the university system is this idea that. You know, their country is being taken away, and, and a lot of that comes down to birth rates. But there's a long history of this. I mean, people like Theodore Roosevelt were talking about birth rates. The whole eugenics movement was about trying to make the, quote, right people reproduce and the wrong people stop reproducing. So this concern over birth rates, this concern over demographics, this has always been more foundational to racism in America than I think a lot of people seem to believe it is. Has that been the demographic concern? Has that been a part of the increase that you are noting, I guess, over the past few decades where individuals classified as white, like explicitly thinking about their white identity when they go to make. Yeah. There is a correlation. Yeah. Wow. I think I think that that really helps put this into context. So, you know, compare a white person voting for president in the 1920s where almost everybody they see is white. 1920s, bad example because of the Great Migration and so forth. So let's say the early 1940s. You're a white person voting for president. Almost everybody is white. Both candidates are white. Both candidates have similar policies towards segregation. They have similar policies towards immigration. And now you have black people in Congress. You have increasing numbers of people immigrating into the United States. You have a black person as president. It's a lot easier for a lot of white people to go, wow, I am a minority here. There are all these other people, and I need to do something so that I don't lose my power. Now, I think it's it's nonsense, but you can see why that sort of explicit identification, as I call it, would be more the driving force than, than some of the other sort of manifestations of racism that we've seen over the years. Hmm. Are you familiar with uh, an author? Her name is uh, Frances Cress Welsing, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. She wrote a book called uh, The ISIS Papers, where she talks about white supremacy in her book. She talks about uh, white people and their concerns about population motivating why they practice white supremacy racism. Is that name familiar? I'm not that familiar with her. Um, I've only read a, a little bit just about her background. Oh, oh, you have heard her name before? Yes. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. What did you think of her theories? I know you said you only read a little bit. I've never, I haven't read her as extensively. She is often attributed as being somebody who sees race as something that's biological. Uh, and that's not how, how I see race. I see it more in line with people like Noam Ignatiev, this idea that it's something that society is, is creating. But the idea that this is around birth rates, that this is about manipulating populations is very much how I see this, this issue. Oh, okay. I would, it would be grand. Maybe you can read her book so you can decide for yourself if you think that's true. But I know she's been a guest on our program many times. And, uh, I think it would be accurate that she views this in a similar manner as racism is a social or race in terms of that classification as white is social political but the primary concern 
is white genetic annihilation and that these individuals who say that they are white they have a biological concern that oh my goodness all of these dark people on the planet they're coming into our part of the world they're going to take over our resources and rape our women or whatever else uh, and that motivates all of this to maintain domination over the dark people of the planet that's kind of the foundation of her theory of white genetic annihilation had you had you seen that part of it or not enough maybe no i mean as i said i i I have only heard of her as being kind of associated with uh, the more essentialist aspects of the afrocentric movement Uh, but there's also a huge problem in which academics try to uh, demonize anybody who promotes Afrocentrism or who promotes like the negritude movement, as it was once called. Um, there are always people who are going to say that what they're trying to do is black supremacy. Um, and you always have to take that with a grain of salt. I mean, people still think Malcolm X was about supremacy rather than liberation. I have heard people call Dr. Welsing that a black supremacist. She was a medical doctor, <laughs> some crackpot professor what have she taught a medical doctor general and child uh, psychiatrist and even the difference what we had mentioned previously you being a white man doing this work black female doing this work substantially different response but I I have heard that saying that she's a black what does that even mean like come on medical doctor man get your terms right Um, and and I mean the people that are doing all that talking are you a medical doc? Did you graduate from med school? Get out of here. Uh, we see if I can nab some of our callers that threw my timing off a little bit with all of that tech issues at the beginning. Uh, the folks who were patient who dialed in, if you had a question for Dr. Long, we've been discussing his dissertation, uh, The Politics of White Violence, uh, which has so much, I think, just really important information. Uh, our caller, 2262, did you have a question for Dr. Long? 2262, you should be... Uh, with us, sir, 2262. Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus, for taking my call. Greetings to all the Cal's listeners and callers. And greetings to Dr. David. Thank you for taking time out to speak to us. Um, I have to ask, how serious are you about solving this problem? Solving the problem of white violence? I think that, that especially as a white person, I can't imagine a more foundational thing, both for society, but also for my own conscience. Okay. Um, This will be my last question. What is your definition of racism? I think that the, the, the definition of racism as intertwined with global white supremacy that we talked about early on this podcast is perfectly fine for for our purposes i'm not big on clear definitions in that way especially for something like racism that is so varied and subtle in many ways okay thank you for taking my call gus i'll meet my line yes sir uh our caller 9029 did you have a question for dr sean david long 9029 uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings, callers and listeners. And uh, greetings, uh, Dr. Long. Thanks for taking some time with us. Um, did you study, going on what you were speaking on with Gus, did you study any other black authors in particular? Um, and if so, who did you kind of find to be more formative? 
Oh, absolutely. I think the two that I would want to emphasize uh, were the three. The first would be uh, W.B. Uh, du Bois, who we, we mentioned very briefly. I think that this, this discussion that I offered about the relationship between state institutions and and lynchings and everyday white violence is, is a central contribution that Du Bois makes. Uh, but also a lot of what I focus on draws from, from the work of, of the great Franz Fanon, and more modern people like Akil Mbembe, um, these have all been very, very central. So I would highly recommend people go and, and read Fanon, go and read Mbembe if they want more kind of understanding about the way my theories fit into broader understandings of racism and violence. Okay, I appreciate that. And um, last question I wanted to ask is, do you also see an economy along with white violence as you know, along with the political aspect, do you also see an economy that fundamentally supports that as well? And that'll be my last question. I'll meet my mom. Thank you. I think these are both great questions. And I think, again, going back to, to Du Bois, right, we can't see the function of white violence as totally divorced from getting the sort of economic um, and the economic privileges and luxuries and access to land that are, are central to, to white society. I mean, it's hard to imagine being white without imagining the suburbs, and you obviously can't imagine the suburbs without thinking about the way that violence was used to displace people of color from their land. Excellent. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, victim in New Jersey. Did you have a question for Dr. Long? Hey, how you doing, uh, Gus? Um, how you doing, Doctor? Um, so, Doctor, uh, the, the, um, the Daniel Pen- Penny, uh, Neely Jordan case in New York City, the subway, uh, strangling of Neely Jordan. Um, so when we talk about violence and racism, um, how much does the media play in, uh, minimizing um, and not accurately reporting stories, how much of that contributes uh, to racism? And even when you have a political uh, figure like uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who raised money for Daniel Penny and the media reporting and not accurately calling those actions for what they are, which is racism, you know, how, how much does, is the media complicit in um, supporting the violence of uh, white racism? I mean, I think there has to be seen as a, a pretty considerable impact. Um, this is not a side of things that I have explored as much. This is something that people have been, have been studying for quite some time, the way the media can, can exacerbate sort of racist uh, discourse and, and the, the rhetoric of people like uh, DeSantis. One of the things I've looked at specifically is how Trump, as a, like the prominence of Trump via the media, because Trump was so effective at using the media uh, and still is to get his message out there. His rise to prominence led concretely to increased extremist organizing, to increased levels of hate crimes. Um, and, and clearly the media is, is complicit to that. But more importantly, we need to also see how social media is a platform for whites to organize and do these things. 
So while cable news presents associations between black people and criminality, white people then share those stories on Facebook or Twitter and start figuring out how they can organize amongst themselves to deal with it. Thank you. Much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, let's see. Wanted to make sure I got in uh, because we have spent so much time on this broadcast talking about the role of white women in maintaining the system of white supremacy, racism. And you do include a gender assessment in your report. I'm jumping down. This is on page 80. Uh, gender does not appear to be a dominant factor based on previous analysis. Instead, most of these analyses show gender as a relatively minor, albeit often significant factor with women slightly less likely to support political violence than men. For instance, 2018, the ANES regressions show women supporting violence at only one or two percentage points less than men, controlling for other variables such as conservatism or white identity. And these findings are similar with Dartmouth findings reduced support by only up to five percentage points. There were similar results for support of the alt-right as well, I'm jumping down to 82, uh, the qualitative evidence indicates that women are often seen as these same sort of outgroups in ways often tied to the same position directed against racial minorities. In an explicit instance of this equation, one online discussion attempted to compare the role of modern feminism with racial affirmative action policies arguing that despite women getting free shit, they keep asking for more and asking how long before this happens with blacks. Despite the ludicrous nature, ludicrous nature of the sentiment, respondents were generally in agreement, either sympathizing that it's so frustrating or quibbling that blacks are already at that point anyway. The role of gender in pro-white discourse goes much deeper, however, than just a sense of both out groups. White women, unlike people of color, are essential to promoting whiteness, although there is a need for them to fulfill certain gender-related expectations, namely reproduction and marital docility. I'll pause there because I think it's so important in terms of white women's role in the system of white supremacy, but their role in violence, especially. I do think that's important. I do hear a lot of white men who have their problems with feminism and all of that feel like they're under attack and losing out in some way to women, even white women sometimes. But man, white women are so important. And just even that, that really there's not a, su a substantial difference in white women's support of this white violence. I think that is so important as well. Can you speak to that as well, Dr. Long? Yeah, of course. So there is often this sort of argument that the sort of violence that we see is more often driven by men. Um, and in terms of actual perpetrators of violence, this does seem accurate. Historically, the people who actually did the lynchings tended to be men. Um, but there is a long history of white women's contributions to these efforts, either as, as naming targets for lynch mobs, as helping their husbands in the Klan organize. Um, women were very active in, in many of the different stages of the Ku Klux Klan, for instance. Um, and if you think about, again, this, this focus on birth rates, 
you can't have a sort of ideology surrounding the need to maximize white birth rates without thinking about the role of women as 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 reproductive machines, if if nothing more, for a lot of these these extremist people. So there's also this added layer that I think the quotes you read get to, where not only are women's white women seen as essential to the movement, but white women who choose to be feminists are seen as as by that choice, be, like making themselves outgroups where they could be valuable assets to to the, the propagation of the white race. So gender does play this very interesting role in all of this as white women who ascribe to these sorts of norms are willing to have big families of white babies um, are always going to be seen as on the side of, of white supremacy. Um, but it does seem that there is this need to maintain traditional gender roles that underlies a lot of this white supremacist ideology. I read this and I thought of one, I immediately thought of Carolyn Bryant Donham and uh, Amy Louise Wood uh, lynching as spectacle. And we talked about how in a lot of those lynching pictures, white women are not present. And that's not always the case. Sometimes the crowds are so big, they got the whole town there. But a lot of times it's white men. And she talks about how white women we talked about with her. White women are very important. And as you said, going to point out, Carolyn Bryant Donham, who just died, didn't get to 2024 with us. She was there, allegedly, to point out Emmett Till so that he could be lynched in 1955. And there's been a lot of that. Even the case that we talked about last week in Duluth, uh, Minnesota, white men and white women participated. Warren Reed made that explicit in his book. And I asked him why the whole town was here was thousands of people the same thing you wrote we could get souvenirs take pictures get out gussied up they put it in the paper poor white people rich white people have some drinks a whole social gathering about what but and a lie because it wasn't even true that there had been a negro who raped and then after they did that they kicked all the negroes out of the town uh but i thought of all of that and then i fast forwarded to january 6 because there were so many white women uh, who participated in all of that and uh, Ashley Babbitt they made a whole martyr and hero out of her getting killed uh, at the Capitol uh, even Rachel Powell and she was in Pennsylvania and she stuck out to me because of everything that you just said they did a huge report uh, on this woman Rachel Powell white woman in Pennsylvania they showed her with her apron she had the flame it was dirty too she had the flower all over and she said what do you mean insurrectionist I'm making pies I'm a grandma I've got babies and she's got a rolling pin and she's got the dough by hand and put the pies and then they cut away and show her on January 6th this was pink hat lady she had an an ice axe and a battering ram doing the he trying to break into the capital and everything they're like isn't that you right there and they said yeah yeah that was me why did you leave pennsylvania you're you're making pot why did you go all the way dude well my president called me you know where did you get an ice axe from and she said well you know i didn't i didn't know i couldn't think clearly and i'd been beaten and i was in pain see their grief their victim yeah, but i said Man, there were a lot of white women uh, who were right there bear spray, ice axe, all of it right there on January 6th. That was not a, a total 
white men uh, a campaign of white violence that day. Um, I just that's one because white women get that pass so frequently they're talked about as as victims, and this is white male patriarchy. That's one that I generally try to give lots of emphasis, and that we got lots of live time illustrations, uh, not just Carolyn Bryant Donham, Ashley Babbitt. Rachel Powell uh, but yeah can you even January 6th like Ashley Babbitt she became a whole martyr in January 6th right right yeah I think that's I think that's really important to point out I like the juxtaposition of the the very sort of domestic suburban woman who's baking cookies is also the same I mean that's a similar sort of I mean that feels like a very classical white suburban moment and and the actions on January 6th are done to kind of defend at least in their minds that sort of idyllic, sort of traditional family life, um, or at least traditional to, to white Americans. And I think seeing those two as intertwined is really important to, to this project. I would add that I think that white women are very much don't flourish under the sort of roles that a lot of white supremacists would try to impose, but I don't think that white people flourish under these things in general. I think it's it's something we've convinced ourselves is good. And it's not good for anybody. Hmm. That's fat. What, what, wow. Let me even, you don't think white people, they dominate the world and have more wealth than black people by an extraordinary margin and dominate all areas of people activity. You able to complete your thesis on all of this? That's not flourishing. I mean, I think that, that people get a lot of, get a lot of material out of these things. You get a very fancy lifestyle out of these things. But I think that there's a certain level that being complicit in this massive amount of violence kind of robs you of the ability to have a genuine culture. I like to joke to my students that white people don't have a culture and we basically just steal it from other societies. And I think that, that, I mean, that's in part in jest, but also speaks to the fact that there's a kind of a deep rot and a deep alienation in a lot of white society not a happy society it's just a materially successful one hmm. the culture is white supremacy racism that's racist jokes and all, the culture is white supremacy racism isn't that true that's true that's true i just don't think it's as fulfilling as a society that is you know not built on assaulting and punishing our neighbors I think white people would be a lot happier if they weren't trying to do all of that bullshit and being so stressed about the success of their domination and their empire. Mm. Justice would definitely be better. Um, when you I'll see if I can get in two more, um, when you write whiteness as a dominant paradigm has traditionally been seen as invisible to white Americans. This is on page 53. What do you mean there, Dr. Long? Can you repeat the quote, please? Yes, sir. On page, this is the very top of 53, the first full paragraph. Whiteness as a dominant paradigm has traditionally been seen as invisible to white Americans. I think this just speaks to the same idea that we've been talking about, that, that because historically there haven't been major political or economic threats to white supremacy in, in America, um, white people have been able to be somewhat complacent. They haven't felt the need to to see whiteness under threat. It hasn't been quite as salient to them because it's, for the most part, been unthreatened. I mean, there's obviously situations where white people 
like uh, emancipation where white people became afraid in massive amounts about threats to their privilege. Um, but for the most part, when that privilege is, I mean, when the entirety of Washington, D.C. ruling class is, is white, it's pretty easy to just assume that that's normal and to just not think about anybody else. Hmm. That's... Hmm. I guess the the difficult for for me to process that what's not making sense is what you told us before like you grew up and you're telling all these racist jokes and what have you it can't be invisible or something that you're not thinking about right. if you're telling these racist jokes and playing Dixie you know and all, I mean it just you wouldn't get the racist jokes like what what would be the punchline oh that's like, true but I suppose if you were to have asked me then if I identified strongly with being white I would have told you no I never thought about myself as white. I never thought about whiteness as being an important thing. I thought about outgroups, but I didn't think about my in-group in the same way that it seems like people increasingly are now. And maybe that's just denial. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just a deceit um, or self-deceit. I'm not sure. But it seems like people are more willing to say, yes, I'm white and I'm proud of it than they were 30 years ago. Hmm. Fascinating. Now, I don't know how significant that is. I don't know if what that's doing is saying, you know, racism has gotten worse, which I'm not necessarily saying it has. Um, the 90s were a pretty racist period. but hmm. I, You talked about the importance of associating, like you were looking at hate crimes and talking about their widespread everywhere. They're not that whole nonsense. But, hey, if you have more contact with non-white people, you won't be racist. Like, right. no, nope, hate groups are every like everywhere uh but you talk about the correlation that when donald trump starting with his 2015 when he announces he's gonna run for president and then all the way through it seems like that did have a slight impact on incidents of hate crimes and i was looking at the data and you kind of tease it out academic total scholar dr long so he teases all this out and he has uh that on june 16 Donald Trump announces, hey, go, uh, folks, get ready. I'm running for president. This is 2015. June 16 makes his announcement, I'm going to run for president. Wow. That is crazy. Because I had not processed it before. Uh, do you know what took place the next day? Are you, are you asking me? Yes, sir. A surge in, a surge in hate crimes. A surge that continued throughout the the rest of the election absolutely correct but the answer i was specifically looking for the very next day which i don't i guess i would have to say i didn't know this either because i would have emphasized it more frequently over the years but the very next day after trump announces he's running for president dylan storm roof goes to that charleston church and kills nine black people one of them state senator Dr. Clementa Pinckney kills all nine of them. And I said, wow, that happened 24 hours after Donald Trump declares I'm going to run for president. Like, wow, I would have really emphasized that through and through, even when I'm. Oops. 
people were being rowdy. But I looked in your report to even see because it, it didn't seem like that you drew specific attention to that incident, that that being in such close proximity Did that. I, I guess I didn't miss it because you didn't you didn't emphasize it here. Don't you think that's that's one everybody should be like, hey, look at this. Twenty four hours later. I do think that's interesting. It's something I've thought about. Um, one of the chapters, it's not in the dissertation, but it will be in the book when it gets published, looks more specifically at the different manifestos of people like Dylan Roof. I think the reason I don't draw attention to that is because my understanding is that Dylan Roof was planning on doing this anyway, that he was not doing this because of Donald Trump. He doesn't really talk about Trump. He doesn't express any sort of fondness for the Republican Party. And I want to be very careful with the Trump connections. Because it's not like Trump caused all these things. Trump is just one more facet of a, a new stage in white supremacy. Uh, I am, I think I am more concerned by the fact that after Trump won president, there were a lot of people committing hate crimes and talking about how much they love Trump or that Trump was instructing people to, to push protesters and things like that, rather than uh, what seems to me somewhat of a, a coincidence, though, a pretty shocking one i do think that's important because I've, I've seen that same evidence that he had been doing reconnaissance for months uh right. he had gone to the church and was studying and all of this so yes i've seen the same thing that he had been planning this for a long time but even with that like wow that's i would at least point that out that these did happen concurrently and and because he did kill an elected official, uh, state senator, uh, Clementa Pinckney. And because also there's such a long history, particularly in South Carolina, of white political violence targeting black elected officials. That And that's even a part of the climate and context of what you've been saying, white people making more explicitly white decisions. And, and that's something that I've also not heard people talk about, both of those. It would be a day after Trump. And then, and Trump said, we got rapists coming over the border. Dylan Roof went in that church and said, I'm doing this because you're raping our women. Oh, man, I'm going to have to, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. And he didn't even make it explicit in the report, but just reading it drew my, oh, that is amazing. uh, The, uh, made me lose my train of thought. The, uh, can you have a democracy and a system of white supremacy at the same time, Dr. Long? I mean, I think that the only democracy or the only thing we've called democracy in America has been built on this this system of, of, of racism. I, I would like to believe there are ways to imagine democracy outside of this, as I know people like Angela Davis do. Uh, but for me, it's hard to imagine what democracy would look like without the central features to every democracy I've ever known, which is racism. That's, I agree. The, the reason I point that out is just because I think many times we do not same way. We don't understand that white identity is centered on violence. Uh, I think many of us get confused and think that violence is, or yeah, think that this, we are in a democracy that just has little problems with racism every now and then. And these sort of things happen and we just need to get them corrected. And then democracy will work correctly. No, 
we are in a system of white supremacy. We don't have a democracy because that that term gets used frequently. And I think that's just a part of our not being accurate, not being uh, correct uh, in making our assessment. Uh, the last one I wanted to get in this, I thought was such a and I think you you already mentioned uh, Akil Mabembe. Is that how you say his name? Try to be. Yeah. accurate. Yes. OK. okay. Um, I may be mispronouncing his name. He is not somebody that is uh, studied very widely in academia. Probably because he's not classified as a white male, just a guest. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, at any hoot, uh, you uh, reference him uh, in your work. Uh, let me see. This is on bottom of, oh, there's Amy Louise Mutu. Uh, you write, uh, the use of of such violence was not just an instrumental way of secure. Oh, it's got, I got to get that in because we talk so much about delectable Negroes. So the full context for the quote, quote, the coffee and tea served an intellectual served at intellectual salons, for instance, were secured through colonial violence imposed in South Asia or the Caribbean, while the cotton and tobacco, which formed the backbone of early American economy, depended on both the elimination of indigenous people from the land and on the exploitation of slaves. Thus, in many ways, the emergence of cultural and economic conditions amenable to Western democracy then demanded the exploitation of racial others and the application of violence to those excluded from whiteness. However, the use of such violence was not just an instrument, an instrumental way of securing these luxuries. And this is not just an argument about the economic basis in democracy. Instead, this is primarily an argument that ties such economic basis to the creation of a common culture and to the creation of norms that would bind together a community of fellows, that community that could unite to resist state-sponsored efforts at full abolition during Reconstruction, for example, because this community cohesion required a form of stark separation with those upon whom the violence would be inflicted the use of violence would also a critical the use of violence was also a critical part of forming that separation in order to juxtapose a community of fellows with one of non fellows western society had to take the form of a society of separation both spatially reg, uh, relegating non fellows to non places such as the colony or the plantation but also denying their personhood. Uh, that's where the oh, it's Mbembe uh, quote comes in and you talk about how this violence happens in kind of hidden away places at night, uh, in prisons, that sort of thing where it's not seen. And I just, my pushback was, man, so Amy Louise Wood, they brag about white people brag about violence against non-white people. Those lynchings sometimes would be in the newspaper days in advance. And then if you can't be there amongst the thousands and get gussied up and put on your best clothes and all right, cheese, won't take the picture. Boom. Okay. They make postcards. In fact, that's part of the U S uh, post office history. White people were so dedicated to lynching black people. The post office had a really, really hard time getting white people to stop trafficking these postcards 
of lynched black people. That is not hidden, tucked away. They put the executions on television uh, sometimes and make memes and such that you talked about before. Like so much of white violence is bragging and being proud, being able to put your chest. Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes. Yes. Violence in support of white. And you're supposed to, you're supposed to get a statue, a medal, a trophy, a raise, at least an attaboy. That was my point. I don't think white violence is, is tucked away per se. I think it's for the most part kind of bragged about. I agree. And I think there's, there's an odd tension because sometimes it's bragged about, but, but then if you think about something like the prison system, I mean, the prison system functions in, in incredible amounts of secrecy. I mean, at least for whites that don't, or, or privileged whites who don't have a huge amount of uh, exposure to, to the carceral state, it's something that can function very invisibly. Um, many people in, in the United States at the time of the founding never confronted or, or saw the reality of slavery or colonialism in, in their day-to-day, but they also loved idealized versions of that same violence. So maybe there's, there's, there's a way of seeing this, uh, and you're pointing out just to some degree a tension in my work that, that I'm going to need to think through. So I'm speaking somewhat extemporaneously now. But maybe there's a sense in which when glorifying it, it also, it's, it's, not, it's not glorified for what it actually is. Like the, like the lynch victim, the black person has been claimed to not be a person. So when violence is inflicted on them, it's not necessarily seen as violence towards a real person as much as them engaging in some display of, of, of prowess. Uh, because one of the things Mbembe argues is that a great deal of this violence is it's done against people who are not recognized as being people. It's done against people who have been changed into the image of, of the enemy or the image of a threat. So when you're lynching somebody, you're not seeing a human face and doing violence to it. You're seeing an almost spectral presence that you're combating. And then you come home and you say, look, I combated this spectral presence and everybody cheers you, but nobody actually confronts the reality of what, of what that was. If that makes sense. But you're pointing out a huge tension in, in my work and in a lot of the way that academics have talked about this, that I think we're going to have to, kind of process over the years. I think uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, his work, The Man Knot, he makes some um, extremely important points because even what you what you just shared with us in terms of the non-human uh, of the non-white people in these acts that I'm not even desecrating or terrorizing a person, this is a thing, uh, right. a non-man. His very book is The Man Knot and talking about how black males are treated. Uh, but it's it's so salient in so many different forms. He talks about even when Michael Brown Jr. mentioned him earlier, when he gets shot and killed, the white officer who killed him, he got a quarter of a million dollars. That's very aware of what happened. And to see that pattern happen over and over and over, where what I just said, you're supposed to get an attaboy. In fact, we had Norm Stamper, 
as a guest on our program. This is a white man. He was a enforcement officer in California, right down the road from you. And then he came here to Seattle. He was former chief of police. He said he wrote it in his book, Breaking Rank. He said they would celebrate. He said, in fact, he was trained. He was trained by a white man. He said, I want you to get your nigger knocker. You go in there and you grab the biggest, blackest nigger in the bar. You bring him out here and we're going to beat him to death. He said, okay, let me get my nigger knocker. And he said, he told him this was a joke, but you know, of course, we used to beat people up. He said, I used to grab people and whisper in their ear, you're going to die, jackass. And then they would pass out and choke them out and thing. And then they would go back to the police station and high five. He said, it would be like the Super Bowl. High five. I choked that nigger out. <laughs> the racist jokes and all that. He said, this is, this is current. This is not way back ancient history. That's what I right. mean. Like, this is such an on matter of fact, matter the last one, Dr. Curry, Dr. Curry, the black privileged black male in New York, Abner Luima, a white police officer anally sodomized him with a plunger at the police station. He didn't exactly what you're saying. So this all that cover dark he didn't go hide he didn't go do this in the broom closet and you know don't you ever tell him no 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 no. he brought the used plunger out and paraded it in front of the station this this actually makes me the the focus on humor is is interesting it makes me think of a lot of the historical research on blackface that you have this practice that is to this day still something that white people seem to, to like um, that's based on a white person pretending to be black in a society where being black is seen as, as everything that one shouldn't be. There seems like there is, even if things are quote-unquote hidden, there's always a, a humor or a drive among many white Americans to to enter that taboo and to play with that taboo. Um, and I think the plunger, I think racist jokes, I think blackface and lynching all fit into similar sort of ways that whites have, have killed people for fun and have enjoyed that, that fun aspect of things. Dixie, man. Dick, I told you that's our song. That's our song. Dixie. <laughs> They had to literally in Mississippi, that was like, a, man, there was about to be some politics of white, like, what? We can't play dicks? Oh my God, I'm killing right now. But that is another broadcast. Man, I'm glad we persevered through the uh, tech issues. Wow, made my brain computer think so much. Um, we have been chatting it up about the, again, not even out that long, not ancient at all, 2023 of June, the dissertation, the politics of white violence man uh, I learned quite a bit uh, much obliged for battling through all of the tech issues and such listeners and I got quite a bit from your report Dr. Long yeah hey thank you for taking the time to talk to me about all this uh, I think your perspective was, was really helpful to kind of get me to think about a lot of these questions um, hopefully this will be out as a book and anybody can buy it uh, next year um, in the meantime, people should go pick up Wretch of the Earth by Franz Fanon and read about white violence that way. 
Right on, right on. Much obliged. We will look for it, I guess, 2025. So we'll already have that in the uh, in the hopper to keep an eye out sometime next year uh, for Dr. Sean David Long's book. Uh, thank you so much for joining us from Oregon. We'll be talking about them in the book club coming up on Thursday. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this evening. We'll be looking out for the book next year, sir. Thank you. Have a great one. Thanks, sir. You too. Context of white supremacy. Man, thank you for the uh, listeners being patient. I uh, know many folks could say, man, Lane Cuss, cooning again, messing up on the phone and all the rest of it. Hopefully I was not uh, cooning on the phone. Uh, I was, you know, prepped, ready to roll. And uh, yeah, but just had tech issues. I don't know. It's like uh, his line was much better. I don't know if he switched phones or whatever, but it was much clearer once we finally got him and he dialed in on the program line so I'm glad it was uh, worth it I guess people if the people who listened live and or the people who listened to the archive you can judge for yourself was it worth your time and energy did you learn anywho uh, we will be here tomorrow now you can think about everything that we hear for the rest of the week so is this violence is this violence we'll be talking about health care and racism tomorrow is this white violence Wednesday is kind of a layup one because that is a white woman operating a slave plantation so that's you know yeah. one plus one is layup on Wednesday but you can think about that for really everything white violence anywho uh Listener-supported counter-racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links for PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Much obliged for the folks who've invested, kept us on the air 15 years. Hopefully we've been worthy of your time and energy. Man, uh, let's see. I think if we had not had all the tech issues if I could have got him without so much difficulty uh, earlier in the broadcast uh, I think I would have been able to get to a few more questions uh, just the the hate crimes uh, component of his work is really important too that it's not there is no factor they are everywhere literally everywhere <laughs> doesn't matter black people are there they're not there you have a large number of people small number of people everywhere that again tells you about what it means to be classified as white even I have to pause I'm not saying that Dylan Roof is a MAGA anything of that nature whatever that means but man for Donald Trump to declare his campaign June 16th 2015 Dylan Stormroof to hit that church on June 17 2015 man every time every time he gets talked about that would be brought up again I'm not saying he's mag or anything but even that I'd be pointing out the similar so this one guy wins the presidency saying that non-white people are hopping the border to rape white women the next day after he announces he wants to be president, a white guy goes into the church in South Carolina 
and kills nine black people, one of them a state senator, and tells the worshipers, I got to do this. You're raping our women. That's pretty significant. Man, I would have to think about that. I'm even disgruntled that I guess Dr. Welsing had been talking about, I guess I didn't pay attention to the exact day that he said, okay, I'm going to run for presidency. Wow. That is man. I have to think about that. And even the greater point of the work in terms of what does it mean to be white? I think this is probably going to be one of the programs. I should put that in the title. White people kill for fun non-white people really we have to think about that they start talking this nonsense about privilege we get this problem solved white people kill for fun his work white identity is about violence to maintain white power we started the broadcast doesn't really look like there's a whole lot of evidence that there's any white people that are down to give up white power. What does that mean? Keep my guns loaded. He even has that as a direct quote in the book. Got a problem with the dark folks. Keep the guns loaded. Which is directly related to Columbine. Anyway, uh, let's see. Folks who were with us, uh, thoughts that you heard from Dr. Long uh, that you would like to share, if it was worth your time and energy, how would it impact your understanding of white supremacy, racism Uh, we'll see if we can edit the audio so it won't be too cumbersome we can cut out some of the time wasted at the beginning when we uh, were trying to get the audio figured out, might have just been Gus T being a coon, although I say the same thing I said at the beginning, I never give white people the benefit of the doubt, they do marvelous things all around the world, he went to private school, I didn't go to private school my whole life, come on man Come on, man. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in. We didn't get any racist jokes. Oh, man. Put that one up there. How many times have we had white people on the program? With it? Oh, yes. I've been. Oh, yeah. I remember. I remember a coon joke. Oh, yeah. I remember about 5,000 of them. But I'm not telling you all one. We have heard that one a whole I don't understand. Like, what? what is the big deal? What? Come on, man. Come on. Uh, folks who dialed in, any thoughts, observations, what they heard from uh, Dr. Long? What did you learn? Things you will take away? Was it worth your time and energy? Um, may I be heard? Caller at 9029. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think a lot of what he was um, speaking about I'd like to see like kind of expanded on like expounded a bit more I think the, the political aspect going into the the economics of it I think is it's a huge discussion and, and I believe it's been touched by other authors as well but I'm curious to see what he comes up with as a white male that has access to pretty much more resources and as well as um, <laughs> the gender role I don't think he touched on that aspect I think, but I didn't read the whole, you know, dissertation. You have that, but I was wondering about that as well. And I'm glad you put that into the mix of the conversation. Um, but overall, it was, a, it was a constructive conversation for sure. Definitely had a lot of them. Um, wait one second. 
the author he was speaking about, um, I wasn't familiar with. I was familiar with Franz Fanon, but who, I don't remember if you recall the name, Gus. Okay, so it is Akil, and we, you know, pronunciation, you cross our fingers, apologies, victim, Akil Mbembe, so it's A-C-H-I-L-L-E, last name M B as in bottom E M B as in black E Akil Mbembe and black male privileged uh, he's written a number of books uh, Brutalism, Critique of Black Reason Out of the Dark Night on the Post-Colony Necropolitics lots of uh, yeah, lots of different texts he's on the continent it would seem Got it. Thank you. I'm seeing some of his work right now. Um, yeah. Got it. Thank you. For sure. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, he quotes him. I would point out because uh, he quotes Mbembe. Man, hope I'm saying it correctly. He quotes him a number of times uh, in the text, uh, and I read. Uh, one, I think of the spots where he quotes him and it kind of furthers what I've said in terms of non-white people generally do not uh, accurately understand racism, white supremacy. We are still learning. I'd have to get one of the spots. I highlighted a number of them. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Here we go. This is on page 39. Uh, He says, see if I can give you the full. The observation is reminiscent of Amy Louise Wood's account of lynchings as spectacle for Wood. Lynchings were an opportunity not just to sow fear, but to develop a sense of white community. Often lynchings took place amongst a festival environment with food, drink, and general socializing key to the proceedings. Picnic. Whites often took photographs with the victims, with some of these even circulating as souvenirs and keepsakes castration this helps show how the use of violence that created a civilization of moors while interconnected with the prophets that enabled domestic order could also serve as a key form of the creation of community and cohesion amongst whites cohesion among around violence against non-white people black people particularly such an account helps show how white racial formation as described during the first half of this chapter is a clear example of the nocturnal face of democracy by which Mbembe refers to the tradition of violence hidden beneath and excluded from the democratic community. That's what I mean. Uh, where non-white people generally, we are so inaccurate and oh, I apologize. I apologize. We have a new order for worst book ever. It's uh, Alice Siebold is the worst book ever. France Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, we read in the book club. That is formally the worst book I have ever read. I was so disgusted that we had to sit through that book. Man, I would not encourage anyone to read Wretched of the Earth. We did read it in our book club. It's in the archives, but oh my God, 15 thumbs down. If I got a toe, that's down too. That's a cowbell as well. I said that's a book he wrote while he was dying that then had to be translated from French to English. 
and it was written it was transcribed because he was so weak by his white wife that's going to solve our problem with white violence question anywho uh, but the pattern of quoting non-white people when they talk about racism white supremacy because most of the time we're not accurate the this is I guess a quote from Mbembe the nocturnal face now he's in a different part of the world VGQ anyway but he's in a different part of the world I don't even know what that means metaphors white people put it in the newspaper days in advance often we're going to lynch this nigra get the photographer bring your suit we'll have a jar for the nigra's testicles and then we'll have postcards that sell out we just heard that last week Duluth Minnesota the postcards sold out in minutes that's not under the cover of night we had scholars come up France wind dance twine where white people memorialize acts of violence against non-white people they have trees and lampposts that become memorials in the town where they know that's where we lynched Leroy he got mouthy that time and reckless eyeballing and oh we strung him up oh man that was a good one Mm -hmm. had ham sandwiches that night too Mm -hmm. that's not hidden tucked away they brag about this sort of thing all the matter of fact matter of fact matter of fact Dr. Jacqueline Battalore was a guest on the program in 2010 and 2013. She was at the White Privilege Conference. I saw her directly there. She told us the Texas Rangers, they are currently World Series champions, professional baseball, white ball games. She said that franchise is about memorializing white violence against non-white people in the area we now call Texas. Anyway, that's not nocturnal face. They brag about terrorizing us. Other folks have commentary? Soon we got everybody. Hopefully, we'll see if we can get better connection first time through tomorrow so we don't have all the wrangling and such. Man. Hopefully it was worth it. Help people be a little bit less confused. Uh, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling no gossiping no throw away black people cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.